Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Black Swan, we are exploring Jesus through the eyes of Mark's gospel. We are going to be looking at the reason why Jesus, who started off as a poor peasant from Nazareth, became one of the most influential figures in the Western world. I hope you enjoy. Second scripture reading, continuation of what we just read. Jesus continues on and he says, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves Take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. With the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to begin this morning by saying Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. I'm so happy that you all came to see us. I'm sorry that it's not a brighter, happier day for Mother's Day, but I'm sure that all of your children got you amazing gifts that uh, you will cherish forever, or they got you cash, one of the two. So, (laughs) always a preferred gift, right? Well, I'm happy that you all could be here today because I have to tell you, this is actually, uh, I preach a lot of sermons week in and week out, and today, in my opinion, this is one of the most important that I'm preaching uh, because today we're actually talking about what is, in my opinion, to be the fundamental core of everything that Jesus teaches. So if you missed everything else and you're here today, you made it on the right Sunday, right? So... I will tell you openly that this particular text that we read today, it is the reason why I began to explore Christianity in the first place. Last year in our Genesis series, I told you about a particular verse that made me want to become a Christian. But the verses we read today, this is what made me start the journey. And if you ever wondered, what is Christianity really all about? Well, you needn't look any further than what we read here today. What Jesus says in this text is so profound... And so critical to our understanding of our relationship with God that I want to take special care to unpack all of this so that everybody understands what's going on. So it starts off with a question. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? So he wants to know, what are people saying about me there out in the world? And the disciples, they give a couple of answers to this. They say, well, some people think that you're John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist... You probably heard of him. We talked about him a, a couple weeks ago. And he was recently, in our gospel reading, executed. He was beheaded. He was killed. And so some people believe, well, hey, this guy, John the Baptist, right, he's dead. And Jesus, he's a lot like John. So maybe Jesus is John who's been brought back to life. Like, that's what they were thinking at this time. So they thought maybe he's like a reincarnated or resurrected version of him. So that's one response that's out there. The next response is, well, maybe... You're the prophet Elijah. 
Now, my son, his name is Elijah. When he heard this in the last service, he's like, you're talking about me? <laughs> I'm like, not talking about you. I'm talking about the prophet from the Bible. So if you don't know who Elijah is, what you need to know for this particular story is that there's this tradition that Elijah, there's this chariot that was sent from heaven. It was a flaming chariot that came down, picked Elijah up, and took him to heaven. The idea is he never died. And the Jews believed that when God was going to judge the world, Elijah would be sent ahead of him to announce that God was coming into the world. Have you ever been to a Jewish Seder? Any of you have been to a Jewish Seder before? Okay, there's always a seat for Elijah, because the Jews are waiting for him to come back at the Seder. And so some people said, well, maybe Jesus is Elijah, come to announce God's coming into the world. And then some people said, well, no, maybe he's not any of those two. Maybe, maybe he's just another prophet in Israel's long line of prophets. Now, what we can take away from these three things is that there was obviously a little bit of discontinuity. Nobody really agreed about who Jesus was. There was a lot of various opinions. No real consensus as to his mission and purpose. And you want to know what's true? Is that 2,000 years later, not a whole lot has changed. If I took 10 of you after the service and I got together and I said, who do you think Jesus is? I get 10 different answers. Now, there'd be some similarities between what you're saying, but generally speaking, everybody has their own version of Jesus in their head. And that's a big reason why we come here. We're trying to figure out who is this Jesus guy and what does he really mean to us? Now, if that makes you uncomfortable, this idea that there is not one single way that people see Jesus, you have to realize that the disciples, they actually didn't see Jesus one way either. That there was a lot of disagreement among these guys, and they were with him 24-7 for three years. They didn't agree. And if you want to know and proof for that, the next thing that comes up with this is he says, but who do you say that I am? He points to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And the only person to answer this is Peter. And Peter says... Well, you're the Messiah. Now, that word Messiah, Mashiach, what does it mean? You all might know. You've heard me say before, what does it mean? Huh? Say again? Anybody? Guy who gets paid? Thank you. All right. (laughs) Anointed one. (laughs) There we go. There we go. Okay. Messiah, Mashiach, it means anointed one. That's all it means, that you have oil on your head, right? Now, here's the thing. In Jesus' day, everybody had these, all these different conceptions of who the Messiah was. There was no one meaning behind it. And so, basically, we don't know that much about Peter's understanding of it. But what we do know, we know two things. One, Jesus agrees, I am the Messiah, because about what he says right there, he says, he goes, uh, and Jesus, he sternly orders them not to tell anyone. So he doesn't deny it. So obviously he agrees. But what we come to find is, is that Peter's understanding and Jesus' understanding are two different things. Because Jesus, right after this, he says, hey guys, come here, I just want to tell you something. Look, here's the deal, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected by the priests, by the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and then I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back after three days. And Peter's not too taken with this concept. He's like, no, and it says he rebukes him, which means he yells at him, he chastises Jesus, because in his mind, that's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. The Messiah's not supposed to die, right? In Peter's mind, the Messiah... Is supposed to live and make all of our lives better. This whole idea of him dying, it's not going to benefit anyone. Now, this disconnect, there's a disconnect here, isn't there? Jesus thinks one thing, Peter thinks another. This disconnect has caused some scholars to speculate whether or not Jesus actually knew he was going to die. Now, why does this cause them to say that? Well, first of all, in the Gospels, it seems like Jesus really is very aware 
that he's going to die. Like, he's not going to be here much longer. He knows that. But do you know how long after Jesus' death the gospel was written, this gospel that we're reading? Forty years. Forty years later. So here's a question, and I'm just throwing out an idea here. What if Jesus was in Peter's camp originally? What if Jesus thought he was going to live this long, fruitful life as the Messiah? What if, what if Jesus didn't think he was going to die? What if this was inserted into the text later, when all of a sudden he got captured and killed, and he hadn't really expected it? And they're like, well, we better add this suffering thing in there, because that's what ended up happening to him. Now, I'm just throwing this idea out there as a concept. It's something that scholars have put out there. I want to give you my own opinion on this, because honestly, we don't know. We can't, we'd have to go back in time. We'd have to see what it's all about. We'd have to ask Jesus, so we don't know how he thought about this. But I'm going to tell you what I think. I think that suffering is not inserted into the text. I actually think he knew quite well what he was getting into. And if you were here when I talked about the death of John the Baptist, I gave you some very vivid imagery about some of the things that he experienced. So I just want to briefly go over it, not to the point where it's going to be as much detail as I talked about last time. If you were here, I got into pretty specific detail. But jump ahead, if you would, so that we can take a look. Okay, so we're looking at an area of this map in the corner where we're talking about the fact that Jesus, right, he's from Nazareth. You all know that, right? So that's where he's from. He's known as Jesus of Nazareth. About five miles away from where he lives with this city called Sephoris. So there's Nazareth, and then Sephoris is right there, right close by. Okay? Now, Sephoris was this really wealthy city, and around the time Jesus was 10, this city was sacked by this guy named Judas the Galilean. So Judas, he comes in with a group of about 2,000 followers, and they take over the city. Well, when Rome comes in, they capture Judas, they execute him, and they crucify en masse all 2,000 of his followers. And then they burn the city to the ground, and they kill most of the inhabitants in the city. Now, Jesus, he could have seen all this. At five miles from Nazareth, it's hard to see maybe in this, but you can see that Nazareth is actually on an elevation. It's up high. He could have seen this happening from where he lived. And he could have seen all these people who were crucified. He knew very, very well that if he thumbed his nose at the authorities and at the wealthy, that he could end up on a cross. He was very aware of this. And in fact, he was undeterred by it, too. He was more than happy to get involved in what he was doing, knowing that his movement would lead him to death. In fact, and this is the most important point, he builds the entire core of his teachings around suffering. Now, this concept of suffering in the gospel, it is known as the way. The way. That's how it was known among early Christians. Like, if you were an early Christian, you were not called a Christian. You were called a follower of the way. Now, what does that term way mean? Well, Way is not original to Christians. It came with the Jews and then the Greeks before them. And it refers to a particular kind of life which is known as the best kind of life. So, let's think about it like this. If you heard the term way during Jesus' day, you would know that it's referring to a particular kind of philosophy of life. So, it means that you are choosing the difficult path over the easy path. So, let me give you an example in today's world. Something that we often have to deal with in the way. Let's talk about healthy living through exercise, huh? All right, so that's a way that we deal with today. Truth is, vast majority of people do not exercise at all. Nothing. They don't do anything. And here's the reason why. Most people, they get up, they go to work, and then they're so tired by the time they get home that they're exhausted, all they want to do is eat a meal and go to bed, right? 
Now, unless you work in some kind of job where you are doing manual labor, where you're moving around and you're lifting things and you're doing all this stuff, chances are that you're leading a pretty sedentary lifestyle, which can lead to a lot of health problems. And one of the big reasons why it's hard to break out of the habit of having a sedentary lifestyle is because exercise hurts. I go to the gym all the time, and I can tell you right now that whether you do cardio or lifting, it's really painful. It looks like this. This is what it looks like, right here. Okay? <laughs> if you're doing it right, it looks like that. Now, if I don't go in with the mentality that pain is a good thing and that it's going to benefit me in the long run, then I'm not going to get anything out of the gym process, right? That's just the truth. And this is true of so many different things in our lives. Let's take education. So you all have been through school. You know, I mean, I don't know how many of you are geniuses, but if you're not a genius, chances are you have to study the stuff that you're looking at, right? You actually have to, like, memorize it and read it and learn it. It takes work if you want to pass your classes and learn all that stuff. How about your relationships? Well, relationships is another good example. Most people today believe that if a relationship takes work, that it's not worth being a part of. In fact, most people believe that if you have any kind of friction in a relationship, then it's just worth dumping that relationship completely. For people who love each other a lot, they have to work through the conflicts, right? I mean, that's a, the, the relationship, there's conflicts that inevitably arise, and you have to work through those. How about your professional career? If you're going to be respected in your professional career, you have to be ethical, you have to be moral. That takes work. It's hard to do that, because a lot of times those decisions are not popular. Ethical and moral decisions, they don't often make you a ton of money. It's the harder way to go. And so, in every aspect of our lives, choosing the difficult path, it's always going to lead to the better life. And this is why Jesus bases his entire way of being around suffering. So, follow me on this, because this is important. Jesus begins with the premise that we need to embrace suffering. He says, any who want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is one of the most challenging statements in the entire Bible. Period. Because what Jesus is saying is, if you're going to sign up with him, if you're going to get on board with his movement, then you need to be okay with the fact that you are going to suffer greatly. You've got to be willing to lay it all on the line. You've got to be willing to know that there isn't any turning back once you're on his path. If you think that following Jesus is going to make your life easier, you are wrong. It is going to make your life much, much more difficult. And so once you're walking down that path, you need to know that it's going to lead to suffering and possibly even death. And let's take a pause here for a second. If you've been here at all over the last year and a half, you've heard me make a statement over and over again. And the statement is, I believe that God does not want us to suffer. I've said that. You've probably heard me say that. I believe God does not want us to suffer. And yet here, it is quite clear that Jesus is saying suffering is part of the package. So how does that work? How does me saying God does not want us to suffer blend with this whole idea of Christianity where you have to suffer? Well, this gives me an opportunity to talk to you about the two different kinds of suffering that we deal with in the world. And this is important for you to understand this distinction. So, there's the kind of suffering that the world imposes on us. That would be like an earthquake. The earthquake in Nepal. 
What happened? Did those people do anything to deserve that? In spite of one, what some Christians might tell you, no. It was tectonic plates coming together. It caused friction. The earthquake occurred. These people, unfortunately, their infrastructure is not in a place where they can handle that. And unfortunately, a lot of their buildings collapsed. And a lot of people died. Another thing that's like this is disease and cancer. Did you ask for that? Is that a punishment? No. It just happens, these kind of things. These mutations, they occur inside of us. And it's unfortunate. And we hope that we have the right kind of medicine to deal with these things when they come up. There's also another place where the world imposes suffering on us. How about when other people, other humans, try to hurt you intentionally? That's a place where suffering is imposed on you, right? You didn't ask for that. It came after you. And how about when you impose suffering on yourself? When you make those really bad choices that cause you to suffer personally? All those things, all those things I just outlined for you, those are all ways that I do think that God does not want us to suffer. I think that those are ways that God would prefer we did not get into those, and that I think it actually hurts God's spirit when we suffer in that way. Now, let's look at the flip side. There are ways in which we can choose to suffer for the benefit of ourselves and others. The benefit of ourselves and others. So we just talked about that, right? So for ourselves, it could be exercising. It could be things like going to school and studying, your professional career, your relationships. Those are ways that you can suffer, right? And that it's for your benefit. But then there's a whole other side to this, which is you going out and you suffering for the benefit of others who are in need. You actually go into a situation where you're going to have to suffer so that you can help other people. At my Good Friday sermon, I talked about Kayla Mueller. She is a young woman who worked for an organization called Support to Life. And Kayla, she went to the Turkey-Syrian border and she helped these people who were fleeing from the Syrian civil war. They were fleeing into, the, into Turkey, and she was working with this NGO, this non-governmental organization, to help them when they were in need. She chose to suffer. She chose to put herself in a situation. She left her cushy life. She went over there, and she suffered to help these people who were in need. Now, I believe that that kind of sacrifice, that kind of suffering, is the kind of thing that God does want us to enter into. Because it serves God's people in the world, and it furthers God's love. Do you understand the difference between these two different kinds of suffering? Are we clear on that right now? Okay. Now, the second kind of suffering that I referred to, Jesus calls this, or he refers to this as carrying your cross. So what does that mean, carrying your cross? That has a whole historical reference behind it. So when the Roman government decided to charge you with a capital offense, meaning that you were going to be killed, What they would do is they had a whole host of options at their disposal as to how they could execute you. The preferred method was crucifixion, using a cross. Why? Because it was one of the most public displays of why you shouldn't mess with Rome. It was a great advertisement for them. And when you had been convicted of a crime, what they would do is they would, if they were going to crucify you, They would say, get your cross, they would hand you a cross, and you would literally have to carry this thing, which weighed close to 100 pounds, on your back, by yourself, to wherever it was that they were planning on crucifying you. So you'd carry it along, and then they'd hoist this thing up, they'd put you on it. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus dies in about three hours. He doesn't last for very long. But most people, when they were crucified, they would be up there for days, 
before they would die. And so the idea is you would do it in a very public place. So let's say you did it here in Arlington Heights. You would do it in a place where you all would be walking a lot. So if you were going to lunch, you'd see these people up there. Because the whole idea was they wanted you to realize that if you do whatever that person did, you're going to be in the same place. Now Jesus, he literally had to carry his cross. Like that's, he actually had to do that himself. And some of his disciples did too. But we live in a country where we don't have to do that, right? I mean, A, we don't crucify people anymore. And B, we live in a country where we value religious freedom. So we can worship any way we want to. So we have to start reinterpreting this in a much more metaphorical kind of way. And thankfully, Jesus provides us with the metaphor. He says that if you want to carry your cross, what you have to do is you have to engage in self-denial, letting go of the world, and dying to self. Let me say that again. You have to engage in self-denial, letting go of the world, and dying to self. Now, what does that mean? I remember I read that, and I was like, I got, no, I got nothing on that. I don't know what that means. It's a, it doesn't make any sense to me. So I really had to break it down. It took me a long time to figure out. So let me make it super simple for everybody to understand. So can we agree that we have three basic needs, every single person in here? What are those three needs? It's food, shelter, and clothing. So those are three basic needs we all have. It's programmed into our DNA. Everybody seeks these things out. And if... You haven't figured out, this is why humans are pretty selfish. Like, I'm sure many of you in here, you probably think, I'm not that selfish of a person. If I take away your food, your shelter, and your clothing, you'll get selfish pretty quickly. Now, what most people don't realize is that those three basic needs are simply an extension, an extension of those desires, right? The, that, well, hold on, let me back up. Our drive for success, excuse me, is an extension of those three basic needs. So let me say that again. You hear that? Our drive for success is an extension of those three basic needs. So if you're very successful, and I would assume that would apply to most people in this room, you don't have to think about how you're going to pay for your food. You don't think about how how you're going to have to pay for your shelter or your clothing. That stuff is taken care of, right? And what does that do to your anxiety level? it really causes it to drop a great deal, right? But here's the thing. When you have all those needs covered, we have this tendency, even when we have all of that taken care of, to hold on to our resources and our money. Have you known, and you may have known this, that for the last 15 years, we have had enough money in the world to actually end poverty. That if we wanted to, if we worked together... We could actually do it right now. We could end poverty so that no single person had to live in an impoverished situation. But here's the problem. We as human beings, we don't want to give up our money, right? Why? Because we have this primal fear in the back of our minds that one day we might not have enough for ourselves. That we might not be able to care for ourselves. Because what happens if tomorrow I run out of money? And so we hold on so tight to this stuff that we have, our resources, our money, because we're scared of letting it go, because we're scared that we might not be able to care for ourselves. This is what denial of self is all about, right here. It's letting go of those three needs. And it's not letting that person rule your life. When you die to self, when you let go of the world, what that means is you're no longer concerned with the needs of the world. 
You're no longer concerned with, am I going to feed myself? Am I going to clothe myself? Am I going to have shelter? You let go of those things, and this new person rises in place of the old. Now, this new person, when you let that person go, that other person, this new person who rises in place, that person is only concerned with serving others. That person is only concerned with making sure that other people in the world have their needs met. This new person is only concerned with gaining for others. Now, I refer to this way of being as the resurrected life. If you were here on Easter, you heard me refer to that term in the movie. I called the resurrected life. That's what the resurrected life is. Is when you've let go of those three basic needs. But here's the thing. If you want to find resurrected life, it's hard. Because you have to suffer and you have to sacrifice. What Jesus is asking us to do here is the most challenging thing you will ever do as a Christian. If you can even achieve it, and few people have, you will understand why he's asking you to do what he's asking you to do. And I want to end this morning by telling you a story of my own resurrection, of how I came to find the resurrected life. When I was a kid, or when I was a teenager, better, uh, I was a very selfish person. I'm open about admitting that, and I was extraordinarily materialistic. You all know how much I love my technology, right? I love technology. And I was no different when I was a kid. The only difference was that I worked very hard. I had my own lawn mowing business. And I earned a lot of money doing that business. And I spent almost all of that money on my stereo equipment because I loved my stereo stuff. Like having the best stereo, that was, like, that was big to me. That was really big. I loved sound quality. And so I had been building this particular stereo for a couple of years. And I remember it was Christmas break of my junior year of high school, and I ordered this one final component that was about to come in, and I was so excited because it was going to complete this masterpiece that I've been working on forever, right? And so what I did was, in anticipation of this, I had this room in my house that just had my stereo in it and all my electronic stuff, and so I got a brush, and I literally scrubbed the floor of the carpet. Like, I got it all clean and pristine. I wiped down all the surfaces. I got new wiring for my stereo to make sure that the wiring would be perfect, right? The best possible signal. So the day comes, and I get this thing, and I put it into the stereo, and I step back to admire this thing that I've been working on for so long. And remember, there's a part of me in the back of my mind at this point, which is saying, you finally did it. Like, like some part of my life was supposed to be complete when I finished that. Because that's what I believe. I'd done what the world told me to do, right? I mean, I did what I was supposed to do. I worked hard. I got a job. I earned the money. I bought the things that I wanted. got everything that I deserved. And when I stepped back and I took a look at this, I can tell you that I have never felt more empty, more meaningless, and more lost than I did on that particular day. Because I did everything that I was supposed to do, and it felt like I had nothing. And so I thought to myself, if this is how I feel when I achieve the pinnacle of whatever it is the world tells me I'm supposed to be doing, then this isn't it, whatever this is. So it sent me on a five-year journey where I started looking. I was like, well, what is there to life? There has to be more to it than this. And eventually, when I was 21, I came across that verse that Jesus is talking about. And he says, and I love it. He goes, for what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their lives? And I knew exactly what he was talking about. And I remembered back when I was 17, that feeling. 
I was trying to gain the whole world, everything that I could for myself, and I felt like my soul had been taken from me. And that's when I realized, looking at him, I was like, this guy knows what he's talking about. He gets it. He knows what I should be looking for. And so that's when I said, I'm going to follow Jesus' way. And I will tell you, it's been the most important decision I have made in my life to follow Jesus' way. And I will also tell you that it's been the most difficult. I have had to sacrifice and suffer more as a Christian than I ever have in my life. But I will tell you, I have never felt more alive than I have as being a Christian. Every day, I try to claim a little more of the resurrected life as my own. And so my prayer for you today is that you might follow Jesus' way. That you might be willing to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. So that you too might know the power of the resurrected life. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.